Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, my uh, my mom's yurtzeit was this past week, so that's uh, that's the the anniversary of of the day she uh, left this this world, the the physical plane, anyway. And um, you know, it's it's interesting by by Judaism, we 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 sort of celebrate the the day that a person leaves this world, which is as opposed to a birthday, which is slightly counterintuitive and, and maybe a little bit different from the way other cultures sort of like observe things. And the reason is, is because when a person is born, they're all potential, but they're no accomplishment. It's just, and so we are very um, keen on celebrating accomplishment. And accomplishment is really when a person finishes their life. So when a person finishes their life, they take you know, they, they leave behind this amazing legacy, and that's why we, we celebrate the day they, they leave the world. So it's just a, a different perspective. You know, um, mystically speaking, um, there are different ways to sort of like, um, I'll, I'll make up a new word here, paradigmize, make, make paradigms out of the, this, this world. We have 10 sphere out, that would be one map. Uh, another map is four worlds. There are, they're all basically looking at the same thing, just from different perspectives. So if you look at it from the perspective of four worlds, um, again, we're, what we're just talking about is stratifications of light right now. Um, we're not talking about separate planets or anything like that. It's one entity, but it's sort of like the highest emanations of light as it sort of gets compacted down, or we use the word simsum, as it gets compacted down into the material world. So the, the, the lowest plane, or the fourth world, if you will, is called Olamasia. That's this dimension that we all live in right now. And Olamasia means the world of action. And again, this is very emblematic of Judaism, that, that it's about the idea that you're here to do something. Like, okay, do something. So I'll tell you um, a story, I don't know if I shared this with you yet, which is that uh, Malcolm Gladwell, a giant best-selling author, everything he uh, writes now becomes uh, a number one bestseller for weeks or months at a time. Uh, the Tipping Point is one of his, you know, most famous books, but all of his books are his most famous books. He's, he's quite amazing. Um, he wrote a book called Outliers. Outliers is, is about um, sort of like charting, well, an outlier would be someone who doesn't just have success in their field, but has phenomenal, phenomenal success in their field. So that would be an outlier, because statistically, they're like outliers, meaning to say they're, they're so unique that they are, they're sort of separated from the rest of the, the, rest of the crowd. And he made um, many interesting observations in studying outliers. Um, one of them is where, what time in history they're born. So historically, that would be a big factor. So for instance, um, I think one of, uh, he talks about the, the, the titans of the, the computer age, people like Steve Jobs and, and, and Wozniak and things like that, and they're all born pretty much right at the birth of the, 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 the personal computer. I mean, they, they helped create the personal computer, but their birthday sort of like correlates with the development of that. In other words, the, the table had been set technologically for them then to take it to the next, the next level. So, so, so when you're born, 
is 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 an interesting factor. He he noticed he he observed that um, you know that in in certain hockey leagues, one of the one of the big factors were how old you were relative to your classmates, meaning to say that in every school class there are the people who are older than the other people in the class, and so what month you're born in is actually significant because if you're the oldest of the group, say in hockey, then at least for boys who, who are sort of like adept at hockey, they're going to be bigger and stronger than the rest of their classmates, which means that they're going to be better, which means that they're going to attract the attention of the trainers, which means they're going to get the most attention, and then they're going to get the most success, and then they'll be promoted the fastest. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they were the oldest in their class. So again, this is timing. Now, another thing that, another thing that he noticed was this thing that he calls the 10,000-hour rule, which is that, that and, and he does an interesting study of the Beatles, that the Beatles um, had this famous sort of like run of gigs in, in Munich, in Germany, before they really broke out. And he points to that as, as, as evidence of this 10,000-hour rule, meaning to say that if you want to achieve great greatness in your craft, you have to put in 10,000 hours working on that particular field. In other words, that's, that's the amount of... Obviously, that's a round number. That's, you know, he's not taking that number too seriously. But nonetheless, that's a ballpark amount of work you have to put into honing your craft. And, and so, so you have, when you're born, you have the, the 10,000 hour rule. And, uh, and then taking advantage of these, these, these circumstances. So, so in other words, you, you, you then have to seize the opportunities that are offered. It's just, it's not enough. For instance, let's say you're the you're the, the, the strongest in your class, and you, you are the, the, the oldest in your class. If you don't join the hockey team, <laughs> then you're not going to be the greatest hockey player. <laughs> you, gotta, you, you have to... So, so anyway, when I read this book, when I read this book, I thought, wow, this whole book can be summed up in one Devar Torah that I learned from my, from my father-in-law, which is we have this word um, called mazel. And, and mazel, you know, is... Um, is sort of like, um, unfortunately, usually translated as luck. But it, it means much more than luck. It's a certain form of destiny, and, and also it, it sort of like links to um, what you need to fix in terms of your soul. It's a, it's a sort of a, a more nuanced concept when you, when you actually study it in Torah. But anyway, the word mazel is, uh, my father-in-law, Allah Shalom, told me each of those letters stands for something um, else. So the mem stands for makom, which means place. You have to be in the right place. The zion stands for zman. It has to be at the right time. So you have to be in the right place at the right time. But then you have the lamed, which stands for lasos. You have to do something. <laughs> in other words, you can't just be in the right place at the right time. You also have to do something. Right? So I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to send this to Malcolm Gladwell, this Devar Torah. <laughs> So I remember my, my son was like, he said, do you have his email? I'm like, 
no, but I just sort of picked up the book and I was like, and it said something like so-and-so uh, publishers, which is very much not his email. You know, it's very far removed from his email. But and I remember my son telling me, you know, you're wasting your time. I thought, you know, let me just, so I got the Hebrew letters and I explained what each one meant and it was a short email. So approximately two months later, I got an email back from Malcolm Gladwell saying, I love this. And, and but my favorite part about it was that I, I scrolled down and you could see how it had been passed from the publisher to his editor to his personal assistant to him and it had climbed the sort of like the, 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 the hoops, it had jumped through all the hoops this, this, this Devar Torah about Mosul and how it relates to outliers. But anyway, um, this is, uh, this I want to get back to my mom. So, so, so my mom, my mom's yard site, you know, we're, we're celebrating, uh, like I say, by, by one's yard site in, in, in Torah, we're, we're celebrating what they accomplished because it's, the, it's, it's, it's the, the, the last day of their life, which is sort of like the, 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 the culmination of their life in this world, which is the world of action, which is the world of lasas. It's the world of doing something, right? Remember, for each of our souls, it's not just who you are and, and, and what your talents are, but another factor, if you want to sort of try to understand the nature of your soul, is why were you born during this period of history? All right? Or why were you reincarnated during this period of history? In other words, in other words there's the, the, the path of a person, the, 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 the lifespan of, of a person's soul is this process of fixing. And it takes multiple lifetimes. That's the normal rule, anyway, for, for most people. And so the question is, what is it about ourselves that needs to be fixed? And what, why uniquely we could have been born again 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years from now? You know, Mashiach should come before then, but whatever it is, there's something unique about this technological age and this media age and this age of wonderment that we're living in right now that, that we should factor in when we're trying to figure out what to do with our lives. It's not, it's not by accident that we're born during this period in history. So we have to take that seriously. Um, so, so, so back to my mom. So, so my mom was very action-oriented. She, she really was a tremendous doer. And, you know, one of my favorite things about her is that I grew up in New York City. So that was right in, in the city itself on, on 79th and Broadway. So... Um, a lot of people say they're from New York, but they're, they're not from New York City. This is the actual city. <laughs> and, and so, so, um, so my mom, one of the things that she'd do, one of the many wonderful things that she would do is she actually would bake cakes for the firemen, the local fire department two blocks from now, uh, two blocks from where we lived. So that might, if you grew up in a smaller town or in a smaller community, the idea of maybe baking a cake for the firemen was probably that may have been normal. I don't know. May not have been. I mean, I'm sure it's nice in every scenario. But you have to understand, in New York City, where you might not know the names of your neighbor who live literally a door away from you and maybe have zero interaction with any of them, 
the idea of bringing cakes to the firemen of several blocks away was that's a, a, an extraordinary sense of community. Um, anyway, like I say, that's just one of the things. But just while we're on the subject, I'll give you one more thing, which is that we had an elevator man in our building, and we lived on the seventh floor. By the way, I was to become an elevator man all four years during while well, I was at Harvard. You know, when I came back to the to the to the city for the summer, I, I I ran the elevator. That was my summer job, and that's how I realized that I wanted to be a writer because I was you know to keep my mind busy on the elevator. I I was reading all these great books, and and I fell in love with writing and, and literature, and that's 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 how I became a writer. But anyway, that aside. As I was growing up, um, oftentimes I would come back to my apartment and there would be, by my front door, by the sort of the welcome mat, so to speak, in front of our front door, uh, there would be a saucer and there would be an empty mug and a few crumbs on the saucer. <laughs> Why? Because my mother would routinely bring a glass of hot tea to the elevator man and some form of cake. And so I would come back and I would see evidence of her hospitality. And this was almost daily. Like, you know, like, what do you mean there's someone working right outside your apartment and you're not bringing them tea or cake or something like this? Like, you know, and again, you, just to add one more step, it's, this is New York City where you it's very easy not to talk to anybody. You know, that's the irony of New York, that people are so pressed together, and yet a lot of times there's a sense of extreme loneliness, you know? So, um, anyway, so, so I wanted to tell you something that happened this week. Uh, so it was my mother's yard site, and, uh, you know, the Jewish day starts at night, Right when three stars in the sky, that's when the Jewish day starts. And I heard Rabbi David Hertzberg say, Allah Shalom, something so beautiful, which is that that our day starts with the promise of light. In other words, three stars in the sky. We don't we don't need the sun to call it day. The fact that there are already three stars, the fact that there's the promise of light, that's enough to already call it day. A beautiful, beautiful thought. So it starts at night, and then it goes till you know the sun sets the, the the in the previous you know in the next 24 hours or 25 hours later, whatever it is. So it was the night of my mom's yurt site, and this was this past week, and I'm getting ready for bed. I'm by my sink, and there's I notice that there's a paper next to uh, on the counter by the sink, and I kind of just kind of glanced at it and think twice about it and. Whatever. And then the next morning, I'm, I'm getting ready again. I'm ready to go off to shul. And I glanced down at this paper again, this little stack of papers. And I thought, you know, what is this? I don't know what this is. And it, it says it's a, it's a report card. And um, let me just pause to tell you that um, the mitzvah to honor one's parents in Judaism doesn't just is not just restricted to the lifetime of one's parents. In other words, you might think, okay, while they're alive, I'll honor them. And then, you know, then the mitzvah is over, basically. But that's not true. The mitzvah to honor your parents um, 
goes beyond their lifetime. So even after they leave this world, you still have this chiv, this halachic obligation to honor your parents. It, it doesn't stop. Um, so so how, how do you honor them? So how do you honor them, so to speak? So by lifting up their souls, because their, their souls are in the next spiritual plane, and they, can, they, they, they themselves at that point can't rise on their own. But because they have this soul connection to you, if you're doing mitzvahs, if you're doing good things, then that picks them up. So that's, that's a very, and if you can give charity in their name, tzedakah in their name, if you can do good works in their name, that lifts them up, and that's, that's a very beautiful thing. So anyway, I glanced down, and it's my mother's yard site, and this paper has appeared. It wasn't put there intentionally because it was my mom's yard site. But this paper is over there, and I look, and it says a report card, and it looks kind of old, and I'm thinking it's from one of my children from when they were young. But when I look more closely, I see that it's my report card from the sixth grade, which my wife had found, and she had just put there, thinking I might be interested in seeing it. And so I pick it up, and I, I look at it, and I turn it over. And on the back, right now, you know, when, with my kids' report cards, the teacher writes some comment about how the kid is doing. But in, the, in this report card, it was the parents writing how the child is doing. Their reaction to the child's grades. And so I turned it over, and there I see in my mom's handwriting, I'm so proud of David's progress. So it's like here on her yard site I got my report card from my mother. And how my mother found a way to communicate to me. Oh yeah, in the house, in that box, there's something nice that I wrote and getting it to me. So, I was thinking, what was the merit that, that I was able to get that, you know? And I considered a couple of things, and then, and then I thought, oh, you know something? Um, my sister was doing something at Herschel on Shabbos. And in, in my mother's name, just a very small thing. And she lives a couple of miles away. And she said, do you want to come? And that way we can be together. And I said, uh, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, it's a long walk. But yeah, no, 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 it's for my mom. It's for my mom. And so I think probably just in the merit of us being together, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's so funny, like, I'm just speaking for myself right now, but it's probably true for a lot of us. Sometimes just a small thing going out of your way a little bit, it means it actually, there's such a disproportional benefit to what you can do for another person. And it's, it, it, you experience it as a, uh, at the time, do I, uh, but if you motor through those things, and you kind of get used to motor, motoring through that little sort of initial level of resistance, I think we'll all probably end up living completely different lives. Like, surprisingly so. 
almost probably shockingly so. The little opportunities for connection that, that exist just beyond, just with a little more effort. Okay, so we're getting ready for, for receiving the Torah. And um, I saw something beautiful in the name of Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Allah Shalom. He, he points out the fact that it says that when we, when we got to Mount Sinai and we arrived at Mount Sinai in the first day of Sivan, the Jewish month of Sivan, that's when we arrived at Mount Sinai, that there's a reference in the Torah about that, and, and, and it says that, it says, Bayom Hazeh. Bayom Hazeh in Hebrew means on this day. It's a very sort of emphatic phraseology, on this day, right? And if you look at the Rashi there, Rashi says, um, you know, it's referring to the receiving of the Torah, which, which hadn't happened yet. So what, it, really the Torah should have said, Bayom Halhu, on that day, meaning, meaning because, because the day that the Torah was referring to at that point was not yet the day of receiving the Torah. So it's strange that it's saying Bayom Hazeh, because it wasn't on this day. Bayom Halhu, it was on a future day. And now it becomes an even stronger question. Because Rashi says that Biyom Hazeh on this day refers to the fact that you should, yes, it's true, we didn't get the Torah on this day, that's true. However, you should always feel as though on every single day you got the Torah. You should always feel, you should go through your life that every single day is Biyom Hazeh. Every single day is this day. Okay? So, that's, that's interesting. But then, Rabbi Shapiro asks a great question. He says, he says, but still, we're getting this teaching about how every day you should feel as though you've gotten the Torah that day. The Torah is bringing this teaching before we got the Torah. <laughs> okay, I can understand if after we've gotten the Torah, you want it to stay new and you want to feel as though every single day you just got it. Right? But we hadn't gotten it yet. <laughs> so he puts it all together in a very, very beautiful way. He says, no, no, no. You know what it is? In order to be able to receive the Torah for the first time, in order to be able to receive the Torah for the first time, you have to feel as though you're getting it every single day. <laughs> in other words, it's a teaching in terms of one's preparation. If you want to you have to feel the aliveness of it, the, uh, the electricity of it, if you will, in order to be able to receive it to begin with. Now, with this in mind, I want to tell you a, a, a mushal, a parable, that I love. I love the imagery of this. So just try to picture this in your mind as I'm telling you about it. So the matter says the following, that someone who has... Torah or wisdom, let's say Torah or wisdom, let's say that's the same thing for now. Someone who has Torah but doesn't have Yira. So what's Yira? Yira is a very giant word. Yira um, is translated um, really two ways. And I'm going to just try to solve the mystery of the, the two-way translation for you in a moment. It's, it would be translated as fear, as in fear of God or as awe, as in my mind is like 
I'm blowing my mind over like the holiness and the infinity of God. So both of those translations are accurate for Yira. And now why are there two very separate translations for this word? Because oftentimes you'll see, you know, like in English you'll see fear of God and everything like that. And it sort of misrepresents a lot of what, what, what Torah is all about, which is this, this exalted love affair, basically, between God and human beings, right? And yet you see this word fear, in English anyway, cropping up all the time. So, and then other people jump if they, if they hear you say fear, and they go, no, 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 awe. And so, ah, so what's going on? So the, the answer is, and it's, it's a very good answer, and you should, you should know it, is that there are two levels of yira. Okay, there's lower yira, and there's upper yira. Okay, it's a spectrum. So the lower yira actually is fear. That's not a mistranslation. It would be fear of punishment. It would be fear of mutiny, fear of betrayal, fear of um, the consequences of betrayal, right? So that's, but that's, that, that's true, but it's a lower, lower level. But it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be part of a person's makeup. It doesn't mean that it has to be the dominant thought in their mind that they're walking on eggshells because they're afraid they're going to get zapped constantly. That would be unfortunate. That would be unfortunate, right? And then, as one sort of adds ava, love, and one adds wisdom to their, to their, to their, you know, to their stockpile and, and grows in terms of their knowledge of God, then they reach the upper year, the higher year. So the Baal Shem Tov compares this higher year that you're walking in, imagine like, just I'm adding this, just, this detail that it's all white, but that in my mind when I hear this this um, this this imagery, somehow it's all white. But but anyway, it's imagine you're walking into the palace of the king, right? And you're so afraid of knocking over anything, like disturbing anything, because it's so majestic and awesome and beautiful, right? So that's the higher era. That's sort of like um, there's such a, a love and a and a and just a just a your mind is so expanded that you don't want to do anything to disturb or, or mess anything up because it's because you know you're, you're just in the state of awe basically so that's the higher year okay so 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 ideally a person is getting to that place and then it becomes this virtual virtuous cycle right the opposite of a vicious cycle right a virtuous cycle where that increased awe leads to increased love, which leads to wanting to be even more careful because you have an even greater appreciation, which leads to even greater love, which leads to even greater care. And it's just this amazing spiral that just like takes you like into the heavens, basically. Okay? So, so now that we have a better understanding of the word yira, right? So let's... Let's let's return back to the um, to the mushroom. So they say a person who has wisdom, but no yira, or said a different way, a person who has Torah, but lacks yira. Now here's the image: is like someone who has the key to the palace. That's wisdom, right? You have the key to the palace, but you don't have the key to the outside gate locking the palace. <laughs> So in other words, you're locked out. (laughs) 
You, you can't get through the outer gate. But you have the gate to the palace. But you're locked out of the outer gate. I, I think that's, I love that. It's like, you know, like when I hear that, it's like what I hear is ancient wisdom. I hear, like, you know, just, you know, because it's sort of like, it's like, it's like, you know, the, they're using these eternal pieces of imagery, right, to express the deepest thought. So, so, so again, you need Yira in order to access your wisdom. And without Yira, you can have wisdom, but you don't really know what to do with that wisdom. See, there are people who are very intelligent, but they're not wise. <laughs> there are a lot of incredibly smart, stupid people in the world. <laughs> Because they don't have Yira. They don't have Yira. They lack Yira. They lack this awareness of, of, of the greater whole. And so I want to just pause to make an aside. I talked with someone, a very, very special person, who's, who gave me some feedback, on, on and, and, and I want to address it. He asked me to address it, so I want to address it. Which is sometimes, especially over the last couple of years, say, I, I've been using more and more uh, Kabbalistic terminology. And, and I just want to explain why, because that's just part of my development in, 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 in Torah study, and so I'm just basically sharing with you guys what I'm learning. So, But for him, it was distracting, um, because it was it's just sort of like he didn't... It, it was just too abstract, basically. And so... What I'd like to do is, first of all, I'd like to recommend a book, which, if anyone is is interested in 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 understanding what this terminology means on a on a, on a uh, in a better way, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think the the usefulness of it is is in a moment. But there's a wonderful, wonderful book called Inner Space, by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, um, and it was put together. Um, posthumously, but from, from notes taken by Rabbi Avram Sutton. And it's a really wonderful book. It's like basically Kabbalah 101. And it just explains the terminology of, of these different terms. Because basically, whenever you enter into a new field of study, you know, you open up the textbook and you're like, I don't understand any of this stuff. I, I'm so lost, I'm so lost. And then you read on some more and I'm so lost, I'm so lost. There are new terms and now new terms and I don't understand any of this. But what I've kind of noticed, and this is, you know, I'm just kind of generalizing right now, but this is just over my life something that I've noticed, is there's basically, in any new field of study, maybe a dozen, two dozen new terms. And if you just learn those terms, you can, you can, you can learn the field. In other words, you have to be patient with yourself to learn those terms. But if you're patient and you learn those terms, then you can get the ideas. For the most part, for the most part. So, so that's true with, you know, you say, well, I've been studying Torah, and then you're, now you're talking about Netzach and Hod and Malchus and Yesod. Ah, I don't know what any of these things mean, right? But I'm just telling you, a book like Inner Space, you just, you take some time, you read something like this, and, and now let me just tell you what, what, what for me the benefit is. You get the shape of the universe, Right? 
you get to be able to talk about the structure of the heavens in a very harmonious, very sort of real way. It creates a reality of the spiritual landscape. And that's very, very beneficial because if you if you um, have an appreciation that there's more to the world than the eye can see, you want to be able to describe the regions that exist beyond which the eye can see. And what's laid out um, in Kabbalah and, and, and the Hasidic Sfarim, uh, the, the Hasidic works, all draw on all these terms as well. So, you know, it's... It, you can study Hasidus, and it's not studying Kabbalah. I'm not telling you to study Kabbalah. But if you want to understand Hasidus, Hasidus is going to draw on these terms as well. So, but the point is, is that it's, um, when, when I use a word like Yesod, right, I'm not just like referencing Indiana. Like what is like, what is just an Indiana in Michigan? And like, you're confusing me. Why are we... Well, I, I, my geography isn't very good. Now, now it, uh, it seems random, right? It, it's not that. When, when you actually have a, an understanding of, of the, the terminology, you see how beautifully laid out it is, right? It, it becomes sort of like, you know, a, a spoon, a spoon stirring a cup. Okay, oh, now I get it. Oh, wow, that's, that's really something. It's not, why are we talking about cups and spoons now? No, 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 it's a spoon stirring a cup. Oh, I get what's going on now. So anyway, that's just a, an explanation of, uh, of, 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 of why these terms are, are very beautiful and very helpful and very useful. Um, but you have to just take a little bit of time to, to, to learn what they mean. Um, okay. So, so now what I want to do is I want to... Uh, tell you two, um, well, let's just finish the, the, last, the last subject. So, so you need Yira in order to access your wisdom. Now, now, what does that mean practically speaking? Right? Because we said that you can have, imagine having a key to the palace, but there's a gate outside the palace that you don't have the key to. So you, so that's Yira. The key to open that outer gate is Yira, that's awe. And then you're able to do something with your wisdom, right? And that means to understand basically, what, it mean, what does it mean to have Yira of the Torah? It means that you understand the divinity of the Torah. You understand that it's the word of God. You understand that God didn't create a world for us to be perpetually in confusion. That God didn't create a world and then put people in it and say, I'm expecting something of you very specific. You're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> this, is, this is cruelty. This is cruelty. Like, as I heard in the name of uh, Rabbi Matasyahu Solomon, the, the Mashkiach of Lakewood, he said he was with his wife and they had bought a blender and they were fascinated that this blender came with a little... 32-page booklet of instructions. And he said, a blender comes with a book of instructions. Do you think the world doesn't come with a book of instructions? Is that possible? Can you imagine I make you a beautiful house and you I, it's nighttime, I bleed you into the house, 
and then I don't tell you where any of the lights are. <laughs> so you're wandering around a large empty house tripping over furniture? Like, why? Why? So, so to have, when, when a person has yira, when a person has yira, like awe of, of what the Torah is, then they look a second time, they look a third time, they look a fourth time. If there's something that seems like there's a contradiction, they understand that that contradiction is, a, is an opportunity to understand something deeper. They look at the, the way a word, word is spelled. They look at the, the crowns on the letters of the world. They look at the, the, the musical notes on a word. They look at the, the, the mathematical number that the word adds up to. They look at the fact that this word was used and not another word which could have been used. They look at the grammatical content. They look at the use of pronoun, pronouns or lack of pronouns. And they see all these things as invitations to depth of understanding. But you have to have yira. You have to go in. You have, your, your approach to the text itself has to be filled with awe that this is the, 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 the word of God in order to be able to get any of these levels. You know, one of the bitter ironies, I would say, about those, those uh, quote-unquote scholars or Bible critics, as they call themselves, who think that the, the, the Torah is stitched together from a number of different documents and a number of different um, uh, eras, and it's just all kind of cobbled together, and they have all their crackpot theories on, on why this is the case. You know, there's such a flow to the Torah itself. It's, 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 if you study it and you learn it, you see it's, it's, it's remarkably coherent, remarkably. And to the extent that it's not, listen carefully because this is the point, to the extent that it's not because there's a variation here or a variation there, if a fraud were, be, were meant to be perpetuated or perpetrated, clearly those proofreading errors, I mean, I'm a professional writer, I proofread, those proofreading errors would have been rooted out if the whole intention was to present something fraudulent. In other words, the wondrous nature of the coherence is, is on every single page. And yes, every once in a while, there's, there's something that's a curiosity that it was phrased this way, or it was put in this order instead of that order. But clearly anyone reading at all who wanted to get rid of those errors if they were making the whole thing up anyway, would have obviously gotten rid of those errors. So, like, you're a genius because you see him refer to one name here and another name over there. 2,000 years later, you figured that out. What a genius you are. No, or maybe this name signified one quality of the person and this name signified another quality of the person. Is that, is that a possibility? You know, I mean, as I, as I like to say, I heard it from someone, I wish I knew who. Every single person, I'll just take myself, you can, you can run through it with your own self, is called by different names. My, my kids call me daddy, right? My wife calls me sweetheart, right? The person who's angry at me when I cut them off in traffic, hey you, right? I mean, Mr. Sachs to my son's kids. How many names do each of us have? 
just a question of who you are in that situation. Okay, so we have to have Yira. So, so one of my favorite ways of, of, of understanding the Torah is that it's the infinite compressed into the finite. Because we say that God took an aspect of his essence and, and, and put it into the Torah. The Zohar says that God and the Torah are one, right? So obviously God has no form. God is not a book. But God took an aspect of his essence and revealed it in this, in this majestic way. That's this concept of the infinite compressed into the finite. So, so there's a medrash about the giving of the Torah, which I really love. And I just, I, I think it's a beautiful piece of imagery as well. So let me just step it out with you. So, there are 22 letters in the Aleph base, in the Hebrew alphabet. And it says that when the Torah was, was revealed at Mount Sinai, the rabbis teach, listen carefully, that there were 22,000 myriads of angels surrounding the divine presence at Mount Sinai. So, 22 letters in the Torah... And the Medrash teaches 22,000 myriads of angels surrounding God at Mount Sinai during the revelation of the Torah. So that's, that's not a coincidence, those, that, that parallel number. Okay? So basically, the, the way I'd like to try to sort of like build on that imagery is if you were to take one letter in the Torah, each letter you would be able to follow it all the way up in a continuum, all the way up into Shemayim, all the way up into the other dimensions, basically. And there are encampments of angels which are correlating with each of the letters of the Torah all the way up. And this is an aspect of the... See, because it says that the angels study the Torah too. See, this is one of my favorite things, is that the... Talmud records a debate when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to get the Torah. Basically, the angels didn't want us to have it. They were like, the Torah's too holy. Like, what do you mean people are going to have the Torah? That doesn't make sense. It's not for them. So God says, okay, says to, to Moshe. Actually, there's a step before then, which I always love, which is that first God gave Moshe the face of Avraham and said to the angels, this is how you treat the person who gave you hospitality? So, because I always have this debate, whenever we get to Breshis, I always think, how could there have ever been a greater person in existence than Avraham Avinu? But then you know that Moshe got the Torah, and it's like, you know, it's hard to say Moshe wasn't the greatest person ever until Mashiach, right? But it's hard to say Moshe wasn't the greatest. But then it always makes me feel better when I remember this medrash that, that, that God gave Moshe the face of Avraham to, to, to convince the angels that, 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 that the human beings have to get it. But anyway, that's just an aside. The point is, is that God says to, says to um, Moshe, debate the angels why humanity should receive the Torah. And I remember that this being 
I was so excited, like I couldn't wait to get to the next line of this teaching. Like, what is Moshe? Moshe's going to say the most brilliant thing in the entire world. He's, this is the, the, the most cosmic debate is about to take place. Do we get the Torah or not? And I remember being so crushingly disappointed to this day. What arguments he gave. He said, do you have parents that you need the commandment to honor your parents? Do you get tired working that you need a day of rest for, for Shabbos? And it goes on in this way. And, and it was only many, many years later that I realized how fantastic that actually was. And the angels go, you're right, you're right. Like each time they're like amazed and confounded by these arguments. And then they go, okay, you know, you get the Torah. So what, what I came to realize was, you see, the angels are studying the Torah, but because the Torah is so exalted, because every single letter of the Torah goes all the way up into the higher dimensions, they're learning the Torah in a completely different way than we're learning the Torah. It wouldn't even occur to them that the mitzvah, honor your parents, has anything to do with the fact that you're flesh and blood and you were brought into the world by two other flesh and blood people. <laughs> like that, for the angels, was a total mind blower. Like, what? <laughs> Why? You have to do this act to these other physical entities? That's amazing! But imagine now how they're learning the Torah. <laughs> that that thought, which sounds so ordinary to us, is so mind-blowing to them. Do you understand? Like, what does the Torah look like in the higher dimensions? So this is when you realize that that's what we're holding when we're holding the Torah, we're holding something that has this sort of like infinite and, and expanding like light to it and levels of understanding to it. You have to have tremendous year, tremendous year. Okay. So now I want to tell you um, to Midrashim from... Uh, Gomorrah Shabbos, which is explaining the giving of the Torah. They're both from Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. And the Meor of Shemesh is going to explain how these two go together. Okay? A very wonderful piece of Torah. Love this piece of Torah. So it goes like this. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says that um, when God uh, spoke, that the whole world was filled with this tremendously beautiful scent, like a beautiful smell. And then, um, and, and, and then they ask, well, wait a second, if the whole world is already filled with this smell, the next time God spoke, how is there room for more beautiful smell if the world was already filled with beautiful smell? So anyway, that, that, that question itself is, is very interesting, but we'll put it aside to, for a second. And they answered, no problem, no problem. God then sent a wind, and he blew out that smell, and then... He spoke again, and there was more beautiful smell. Okay, so, interesting. That's, that's, that's the first teaching from Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. Second one is more widely known, which is that when God spoke, our souls at Mount Sinai, our souls flew out of our bodies, and then we had to be resurrected, and God used the tal, the dew, that he's going to use to resurrect humanity at the end of days. He gave us a little preview of that, kind of gave us some of that. And then we came back to life. 
and then God spoke again, and our souls flew out of our body again, and then God brought us back to life again with this, with this special dew, tal it's called, and, um, and then we said something very interesting. So he has, he has a, a, a fascinating observation. I don't know if this is covered in the, in the, in the Medrash, but this is something that the Mor Vishemesh brings in. Fascinating question. Which is, it says in Parshas V'yes Hanan that after we got the first two commandments from God, we then said to Moshe, okay, it's like, you know how, like today you show two pieces of ID? And once you show two pieces of ID, then it's confirmed. So, so to speak, that's my own words, but God gave us the first two commandments. We understood this is a thousand percent from God. And we said, Moshe, you, you get the rest and give it to us. Now, because we're not going to be able to survive this transmission process. Our souls keep on flying out of our bodies. It's, it's too much. You, you get the rest. Now, I could see, like, does God like that? The fact that we said, Moshe, you get the rest? Does God not like that? I could see it going either way. In fact, if I had to guess, I would say probably God didn't like that. Because wouldn't you want to receive it directly from God? Right? So God loved it. God thought it was a great idea. Yeah, get it from Moshe. Fantastic. So if you think about it, that's curious. Why did God like that idea so much? Okay? So now the Mor Vishemesh is going to put all these things together. The idea that each smell came into the world and then a wind blew it away and then a new smell came in. And also the fact that our souls were flying out of our bodies and then we told Moshe, you get the Torah and we'll hear it from you. All right? Let's put them all together. So the point being that, normally speaking, see, there's a rule in Torah if you want to understand real Torah study. Which is like, for instance, if Rashi brings an explanation for, um, you know, some, some, some wording in a, in a verse in the Torah. Okay, so very good. If he brings two explanations, two different explanations, which he, he'll often do, they say, oh, that's because one wasn't enough. See, if you have to bring two, like I remember my wife used to tell me, if you bring two presents to someone, sometimes that's a, that's, that, that says that each one was not good enough on its own. <laughs> you didn't spend enough on either one. If you bring one, then it's like, okay, that's a present. Two is already, there's a, like a, a hint of an apology in the present. <laughs> kind of funny, psychologically, you know? So... <laughs> So the idea that you have to bring two explanations, like, already, why? Because the first one wasn't enough. Okay, doesn't mean that they're not both great explanations. But, but, but um, the Mor Shemesh is applying this type of methodology question to the fact that Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi is bringing two different explanations, one with the smell and one with the soul flying out of the body. Why does he have to bring two? Okay, so he says that Therefore, you have to understand that they must be working together to explain each other. Okay, so how each explains each other is not obvious at all. But he's going to say something very, very beautiful. So, he says like this. See, when, we, when God spoke, 
and our souls left our bodies, we didn't want to come back. We didn't want to come back to this world. Because we were experiencing such utter bliss and closeness to God that why would we ever want to return? But God wanted to show us that this world was also a beautiful place and this world was also a realm where we could serve God fully. So he put a beautiful smell in the world so that we would be drawn back into this world. Not only that, but he woke us up. He revived us with with this tal, with this dew, which is reserved for resurrecting us in the days of the world to come, Olam Abba. In other words, he put a little taste of the next world into this world so that we would understand that this world is not cut off from the next world, but A, this world is a beautiful place, and B, that this world already has a taste of the next world in it. Okay? And he says, and he uses this as an explanation of why God liked it that we said to Moshe, you complete the commandments, or we'll hear them from you. I mean, they came from God, but we'll hear them from you. The reason why God liked that was because it was, it was showing us that, that the Torah also exists in this world. It's not just coming from, from, from God, but it's coming through Moshe into this world as well. So, so then the more of a Shemesh asks a great question. Here you see like really like the rabbinical mind at work. So then if the world smells so great and we're hearing the words of Torah from Moshe and we're getting a little taste of the next world already in this world, why would we ever want to leave this world? <laughs> Since we love this world so much. And God wants us to long always to be better. Like this is, we always have to be growth oriented. We have to want to be better and better and better and better to the last day of our lives, to our last breath. We always want to be better. So then what, so what did God do? He took a wind and blew out the beautiful smell. <laughs> so now once the beautiful smell is gone, we long to go to the next world. <laughs> And so now we advance to the next world. But then God puts a beautiful smell back into this world. <laughs> and we realize, oh no, we can go back into this world. And now how does he revive us? With this tall. Now I want to, this is now me talking, I want to add to the, this, this explanation. Tal is gamache, it's, it's spelled tet lamed. Tal is the number 39. So 39 is, we know that there were 39 ways that we constructed, 39 categories of work in which we constructed the, the Beis HaMikdash, the, the Mishkan, right? Which is the portal between heaven and earth, okay? So how did God revive us from the dead with this Tal, with this 39, with this hint to us that you're here to still accomplish something. You're here to build this world. You're here to perfect it, to make it like a mishkan, like a dwelling place for God. And the best way to bring someone back to life is to understand that they have a purpose and they have a mission. That is the most life-giving thing. So God revived us with our sense of purpose and our sense of mission. And so, and so we go back and forth. That's the idea. 
and this is called Rotsov Vishov. This is the this is the the path of the angels. It says that the angels rush to the divine light. They rush, they go higher, 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 and at a certain point they're gonna burn up and they come back down. And then they rush back to the light and they come back down. And we talked about Rotovishov, this 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 phrase is the Gamatria 611, which is the same word as Torah. In other words, we're talking about the giving of the Torah, and this is the, the path of the Torah. So the way I understood it up until now was that the angels are rushing, rushing, rushing to, to, to get to the light, and then they have to come back. And the idea that they have to come back seemed to be sort of like um, sad, basically, that we're just so ultimately limited that we can't just keep on charging, right? That this is a Rahmanus, so to speak. It's 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 sad that that, that we can't. But but from the mayor of Ishemish, he's he's saying something very beautiful. He's saying something different. He's saying, We're rising and we're 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 leaving our bodies and it's it's awesome, 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 awesome. And then we realize, ah, oh, there's a beautiful smell here, there's something wonderful down here. So then we're running here, not because we can't stand that or take that any longer. We're running here because this is a great opportunity too. <laughs> this is also fantastic. Not like, oh, I'm out of breath. I got to rest. I got to rest. I got to rest. And everyone's like, ah, there's something even better over there. <laughs> Wait, there's something even better over there. No, there's something even better over there. So it's this, it's this amazing, amazing, never-ending journey, basically. Which is awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. And part of that is the understanding that God is 10,000% as present in this domain that we live in as he is in the upper spheres. It's just that he's more concealed. But more concealed doesn't mean less present. And I'll tell you something, I, I had like a little kind of like happy moment in terms of my study. I want to share it with you. said it a few weeks ago. It went by it very quickly. It wasn't a big moment in the talk, but I'm, I'm just telling you, we, we, we did talk about it a little while ago. We, the, the Pasuk says that, the, that God, basically the heavens descended, that God descended on Mount Sinai. All right? Yore is the word. It means to come down so, heaven coming down to earth, however you want to understand it. But I had difficulty with that, because I was like, wait a second, God already, what do you mean God came down? God already fills this world. <laughs> what do you mean God came down? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So, I was like, no, 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 what it is is that God is already here. What happened at Mount Sinai was God revealed his presence here in a, in a, in a quantum extra degree. That, 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 that's what it is. And then I just saw that the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Torah, translates the word descend as reveal. <laughs> so, anyway, that was, it was a good moment. It was a good moment. So, um, so, so good. Let's just wrap it up. Life is exciting. Life is filled with opportunities. 
we all want particular things and God should bless us, we should all get them fast in the best, most beautiful way. But, but please don't limit your enjoyment of life unto whether or not you're just getting that particular thing. Please don't. Life is too awesome and too absolutely enormous and huge with so many opportunities to do so many amazing, amazing things. Um, that, but, we, but we have an a, 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 uh, unfortunate um, and understandable, by the way, um, uh, proclivity toward narrow-mindedly just seeing our life through the unfulfilled aspects of our life. And um, what a tragedy if, 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 if we continue to do that. Because, you know, I remember one time there's a bridge, I don't know which bridge it is, but if you drive from JFK to New York City, you'll go over this bridge, and, um, or it's one of the ways you can do it anyway. And I remember I was once riding with someone, and they were kind of looking one way the whole time as we were going over the bridge. And, and it's like you see basically this dirty river, and there's like this industrial building and a smokestack, and it's really nothing to look at. On the other side of the bridge is one of the great views of the New York City skyline. <laughs> And I was riding with this person. It's not like they were a depressed personality or something like that. They they didn't know. It just was natural. They were sitting on that side of the car, so they were looking out of that side of the window. But, I mean, that view could have been in any city, in any depressed industrial capital in the world. One turn of the head. <laughs> one turn of the head would give you one of the epic views of human civilization, literally. Literally. One turn of the head. There's a teaching, and I was surprised that this was actually in the Sefer Yetzirah, which is one of our most exalted mystical texts, because it sounds like a very, very simple teaching, like deceptively simple, but it's from the Sefer Yetzirah. So you talk about Yira. You know, you learn something from the Sefer Yetzirah, you have to have tremendous Yira. So it's the word uh, nega, Nega is, is used in the, in the Torah. Nega means a, a, um, basically a, 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 a tsaras-type sore on a person's flesh. Like a nega would be translated as maybe a blemish. But a nega is like a bummer. You, know, you don't want a nega, you know? But if you take um, the first letter of nega and you move it to the end of the word, it spells oneg which means bliss. <laughs> One more time. If, if you move the, the, the nun of nega, right, to, to, the, to the end of the word, it spells oneg, which means bliss. How are you looking at something, right? It all goes on how you look at something. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember I've, I've, I went through it once, but not for a long time. It's, it's maybe worth just going through it again. I, I want to tell you this because it's so hyper-specific. 
it's the specificity of what I'm about to tell you that I think makes this hopefully impactful. And it, it comes from my business, right? So this is my business experience. This is the industry that I work in. So, you know, you ideally you want to get a show on the air, TV show on the air, and ideally it's a hit. Okay, so that's that's the end game. It's kind of like buying scratch-off lottery tickets. It's the the odds are always tremendously against it. So, so here's the process. Okay. Let's say you come up with an idea, right? You say, okay, can I, can I take this idea and make it into a good pitch, right? Like, you know, so let's say you can. Let's say you come up with a pitch and like your, your agent likes it, whatever it is, you're like, okay, I, 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 maybe I got something here, okay? But then the question is, okay, so you succeeded, you got a good pitch, but can you, can you get a producer on board? Uh, well, I don't know if I can get a producer on board. All right, let's say you get a producer on board. Hey, you got, hey, he's got three shows on the air. This guy's hot. They want to do business with him. But does that mean I'm going to be able to sell it? <laughs> I don't, it doesn't mean to sell everything. I don't know. Or am I even going to be able to pitch it well? Okay. So you, you pitch it well, but now they say they're going to get back to you. Ah, uh, <laughs> I pitched it well. What, what? Are, they, are they going to buy it or not? Hey, they bought it. Oh, but now I got to write the script, <laughs> and it's got to be as good as the promise of the pitch. Okay, I wrote the pitch, I wrote the script, but now it's, are they going to like it? <laughs> hey, they like it. They want to make it. They want to make the pilot. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Okay, but you know what? They only want to really put shows on the air that cast a, that have a big star attached to it. Now I've got a script, but who says I'm going to be able to get a star attached to it? All right, I got a star attached to it. Okay, this is great, okay? But now, you know what? Who says the pilot's going to come out well? <laughs> There's a lot of failed pilots with a lot of big stars. Okay, the pilot came out great, but you know what? I'm reading in, on, in, on Deadline Hollywood. This is a very competitive season. There are a lot of things in the running. We got two slots. They got ten shows that they like. Who says it's going to get the slot? Okay, they ordered it. Oh my goodness, they ordered it. But now the question is, okay, what time slot are they going to give it? Are they going to put it up against the biggest hit on television, which means no one's going to even watch it? What kind of reviews is it going to get? We liked it, but you know, most of the reviews you read on shows that get on the air are like, this is terrible. Is anyone going to watch it? Right? So now it's on the air, it got a good review, but what are the ratings? <laughs> and now are we going to get a second season? <laughs> so what I'm trying to tell you is, is that Every step of the way in all of our lives, and now just think about your own life, you have the opportunity to think of the nice thing that just happened or the next step which is filled with unknown and uncertainty and fear and statistical disappointment. <laughs> That's the... Uh, uh, and, but, but here is the point of everything I'm telling you up until now. It is up to you to choose what you want to focus on at that point. 
you can either say, yeah, but you know where they're gonna where are they gonna program us? What time slot are they gonna give us? Or you're like, holy smokes, I got a show on the air. It's unbelievable. You can you can dwell on your accomplishment or on the good news, or you can dwell on the monster that lays ahead of you. And that can be the story of your life. It is up to you. You get to choose. No one else is choosing. You are the one who's choosing. It says in the Torah, choose life. Choose life. Choose life. That's, that, this is what it means. Choose life. This is what it means. And it's in your hands. You have that power. You get to dictate what narrative, what story you're telling with your life. You get to choose. And you have to stay conscious of that because as you start to slip into sort of this unconscious momentum of depression or disappointment, you have to pause and say, okay, right now I'm making a choice. And this takes a while to to really to have the self-awareness and the insight and the discipline to, to detect that the needle is now starting to point downward in terms of your mood. And you have to say to yourself, okay, I see what's happening. Right now I'm making a choice. What do I want to choose? Do I want to focus on the negativity or do I want to focus on the the onik, on the bliss at this moment? The last good thing that's happened. Or the fact that I'm still alive and I'm walking around and I'm even in it. As, 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 as we've said many times, and it's no less true, it is an accomplishment to get out of the bed in the morning. And if you think otherwise, you're, you're, if you're taking that for granted, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. It is an accomplishment just to get out of the house. And it's something to celebrate. And I mean that with all my heart. I mean that with all of my heart. To be a functioning human being in this day and age is giant. It's giant. Okay. I want to finish with this one last observation and I don't really have an explanation for you, but just the, the simple fact of it is is wondrous. We know that there are 49 days leading up to the receiving of the Torah. So I noticed this, and I'm sure it's in many books, but no one showed me. So if you take Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, and Baruch Shem Kavod Machus if you count the number of letters, it's 49. <laughs> amazing, 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 amazing. So maybe we'll think about that some more. Meanwhile, understand our jobs right now is to make ourselves vessels to receive the Torah, which we can do anytime. And the way to do that is to understand that the Torah is being given right now. No matter what day or month of the year it is, it's being given right now. So just a, a further clarification of that teaching from the Sefer Yetzirah. I was uh, concentrating on the, the wrong letter. Uh, it's um, Oneg and Nega are the same letters, but the, but the more crucial aspect of it is not uh, that you're moving the Nun of Nega to the end of the word, uh, 
that, that that's that's not it. It's um rather it's it's that nega ends with the letter which nega which means blemish, ends with the letter ayin, and when you spell oneg, you're moving the last letter ayin to the beginning of the word, and now it spells oneg. So the the reason why that is so meaningful is because ayin is not just a letter uh, in the Hebrew alphabet. Ayin actually is a word, and it means the eye. So in other words, what's the transformation of something looking like a blemish or something being bliss? It's where you place the letter ayin, where you put your eye. In other words, how are you looking at the circumstances of your life? Where are you putting your eyes? Are you concentrating on the positive or the, ne- or the negative? And that could be the difference between um, choosing life. That could be the difference between transforming a blemish into something that's, that's blissful, just by concentrating and seeing the positive. Now for some questions and answers. I have a variation on a question yeah, I always sure. seem to ask. Um, it's with the caveat that yeah, more than ever, it seems like you just made the point that here and to come are equally blissful, shall we say. I really don't get that. But you've often... Well, also well but I wouldn't say equally blissful. I would say equally important, equally vital, also blissful. You know, they say that, you know, just the, the, the next world, we experience pleasure on a level that we can't in this world. Right. So I want to be true to that teaching as well. But you've but, also, you also yeah. said that once we get there, that sometimes we still want to come back. Right. So God, because God wants us here. Right. God wants us here. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll let that sink yeah. in. Yes. But in the meantime, you've also, you've often said that the way, the reason for the suffering here is because God didn't finish the world. Yes, hundred percent. Right. This, so it's down to us to finish. Yes. To help finish. Yes. It seems to me that there's some things here that we're not gonna finish. Well, we're, we're, we're not gonna finish tsunamis killing people. So, so right, right. So, but, but, but you, you, you said the words yourself. We're partners with God right. to finish this world. Right. So there's some things we can finish, and there's some things that he'll finish. But even between us, aren't there some things that are not going to be finished? Well, I mean, that, that's a very big question, but on, on the simplest level, there is no task that's too large for God. So everything that needs to be finished will be finished. However, so the simple answer is yes, everything's going to be finished. However, as... I, I like to point out, because to me this was a, a radical thought, for me anyway, what is the main storyline of the five books? And I'll tell you just straight out, it's the Jews entering Israel. That is the main storyline of the five books. Isn't it interesting that the five books, which are a microcosm of everything, isn't it interesting that the five books end without the Jews entering into the land of Israel? That's interesting. Most people just focus on the fact that Moshe doesn't go in. But actually, by the end of the fifth book, nobody goes in. (laughs) That's fascinating. And I'll tell you why. Because to me, it means that there is no closure ever. But I'm talking about in the grandest, most macro way right now. This world's going to get all tied up. In terms of your question, all the loose ends are going to get tied up. However, 
you will always have this dynamic of the finite interfacing with the in infinite. Which means that there's, in an exciting, fantastic, glorious way, there will always be room for the soul to grow and to travel to even further heights. Because there's always this interplay between the finite and the infinite. Even the angels ask, where is the place of God's glory? Which means even angels aren't fully grasped, grasping it. Do you understand? So, in terms of everything being wrapped up in this world, no problem whatsoever, because God can do anything. But at the same time, there's still this exciting, endless series of sequels that are in store for us in the most wonderful way. 